Nearly a year and a half after I uploaded the original episodes of this limited run podcast, and here I am again. Originally, the intention was to put together my thoughts about how I managed to get from being raised in a white evangelical American household to a non-theistic Satanist, record them, upload them, and do so towards two goals. The first being just to collect my own thoughts. I did find it valuable to spend time with introspection, to really take a close and critical look at my own journey into faith and then out of it. The second goal was just to share. Undoubtedly, there are a good number of people who watch the documentary Hail Satan, decided to do a bit more research, and I wanted them to find something that was a bit more personal. There is a group of people who I hope even more found these recordings, more so than the people who might be interested in Satanism, and those would be the rare Christian who has no interest in Satanism, but is interested in taking some honest criticism about the state of Christianity in the United States and beyond. The reason that I've decided to record this mm, sort of where is Stephen now sort of episode is that I've received a small amount of feedback over these many months through email, a bit on Twitter, and even on Discord, which has been, shockingly, without exception, all positive. Though some of it I've gotten the question of when I'll record more, one even asking me to start a weekly podcast. Well, considering the topic of all of the previous episodes was recounting bits of my past that I feel were noteworthy on my own journey, I'm not sure that I can drum up enough new material to fill a weekly podcast with thoughts on Satanism in my day-to-day. And furthermore, there are other podcasts that already do that and then some. Satanic Bay Area's Black Mass Appeal and Stephen Bradford Long's Sacred Tension both do such a good job of filling that space that I don't really think that I want to burden myself with trying to put together even a monthly podcast. But thank you all the same for that. How I'd like to spend the remainder of this time behind this microphone is talking about how, if at all, my relationship with the ideas of Satanism and my relationship with Christianity in general has changed since I published those older episodes. On Satanism, one of the things that I think is a real shame for the church that claims to believe in one God and all have the same mission for furthering the work of Jesus Christ is the existence of denominations. I just checked a Wikipedia article that lists denominations, and the list includes hundreds of them. And these are just the major ones. That means that there were enough people to think that the way everyone else in their church were trying to handle at least one aspect of their relationship with their shared imaginary friend, that they scraped together enough resources to faction off into a new denomination. It's not a trivial undertaking. Satanism is much newer, naturally, than Christianity, and has less people and resources, but I think that if it had as many people and resources as the whole of Christianity, it would be just as bad at schisming. However, I think that I wouldn't feel that that would be such a bad thing for Satanism. Even though I know I'm going to step on some of those factions' toes with these words, but largely, Satanists don't have a central immutable god figure or an infallible or seemingly unquestionable sacred text. However, there are factions now. I still hold my membership with a Satanic temple, and I still think that my read of the Church of Satan's central text, LaVey's The Satanic Bible, was correct, that it was largely reskinned, right-wing, heartless praise of greed and selfishness. I've come across more Satanists that practice magic, 
and I've also had an education that magic doesn't actually have to have a supernatural component to it. That was nice to know and piqued my interest. There are quite a few magical practitioners who believe that a carefully crafted personal ceremony can have important positive psychological effects on the person or people participating. That makes sense to me. Because neither the people who think magic actually does things in the real world, or people who think that magic does things in their psyche, bother to label what they're talking about as which is which, I've not really found any interest in pursuing it. I'm certainly not going to trade off Christian supernatural magic for satanic or other supernatural magic. Oh, and yes, that's something I've started doing too, thinking of whatever supernatural stuff Christians are trying to do as magic. Casting out demons? That's magic. Praying for healing? Sounds like a spell to me. Babbling to your god? I mean, speaking in tongues? Definitely spell casting. It has really helped me realize the level of ridiculousness, wasted time, wasted resources, and misplaced energy that the church puts into its goals. On the topic of those goals, I think that I have gotten much better at being understanding of Christian people who are actually doing the things that Jesus told them to do. They feel rare to me, and maybe it's just because of where I live and the people I have in my social circles, but they do seem rare. The people who are trying to get resources to people in need, or spending time with forgotten people, like prisoners, as one example, or standing up for the downtrodden. However, I have certainly let so much more anger grow for the obvious targets such as megachurch pastors or televangelists, but also for the small pastors who I don't think they've ever questioned why does their small church actually exist? What is its function? Because I think that in my own personal experience, it seems to be that it's a social club that meets on Sunday mornings and takes money from them so they have a space to set up the chairs. And you'll get to hear a speech about how you shouldn't steal from your employer and you should forgive people. And despite the lack of any actual evidence, the divine is in your corner. That is something that really has been weighing on me recently. This might be challenging to imagine if you were not raised Christian, but imagine that you believe that your God has told you that you're called to be a pastor for a church. You have full faith in your passion for Christ's mission. You enroll in a seminary program, get the seal of approval from someone, and now you're in charge of a church body of some size. And then your sermons have no challenge to them at all. They don't call out the injustices in the world, this country, or even your own community. They're just vague platitudes with no teeth at all. Or maybe you don't start out that way. You just get beaten into it. I don't recall if I shared the story in my previous episodes, but there is a story that I found to be profound in my journey in the last decade or so. If it's a repeat, so be it. But we've all heard of the Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh. You know the fellow that sliced off part of his own earlobe, spent some time in a psychiatric hospital, eventually shot himself. His painting and his mental health are things that I think are widely known, but art was not his first career choice. He was an art dealer, middling, if I've read his history correctly, but eventually turned to the church. He studied theology, but came to the conclusion that it's just talk, words. We can talk about what God is or what God wants for us endlessly, but what is the action that is needed? Van Gogh managed to get himself installed as a Methodist missionary in a coal mining town in Belgium. 
While there, he toured the mines in which the men worked and wrote to his brother about the squalor and unsafe conditions. He was remembered there helping pregnant women carry things, carrying coal, even caring for injured miners after a mine explosion. I could not find a single bad word written about him from the people in that Belgium town, only that he was a godsend. I even read an unsighted claim that Van Gogh moved from his first home to a much more humble accommodation of an unfurnished hut. Speculation is either that he felt this was more in line with the early Christians he read about in school, or perhaps because if he were to minister to these working-class people, how could he do so from a place of hypocrisy? I'd like to think the latter. The church apparently had a team that would go around to each of their missionaries to find out exactly what their money was getting them. They showed up, found Van Gogh living in squalor of his own design, living poor among the very people he was sent to help, self-sacrificing and charitable. This committee declared him a disgrace to the church and didn't renew his contract, ending his time with the church. Years later, following the ear-cutting, he admitted himself to an asylum which happened to exist in a former monastery. While there, Van Gogh painted his most famous painting, Starry Night. In the sky blew swirls of clouds and stars and the moon. Below is a village. If you look close, little squares of orange for windows lit against the night. But at the very bottom center of the painting is a steepled church with large dark windows. I don't know the specific time of night that this painting is supposed to occupy, and perhaps the time is one that would be unnatural for the church to have people in it, but I'd like to think that it's more meaningful. The church had promised something to Van Gogh, something important, something meaningful and with purpose, but what it delivered was like those whitewashed tombs that Jesus told the Pharisees about. My point in that story is that I think that there may be plenty of young, passionate pastors who are faced with the choice of toning it down or risking finding themselves without a congregation or a job. As a result, the modern American church seems to be populated by milquetoast authority that is powerless to do anything other than to compromise with the perennial infiltrations of those that would have the church continue to prop up the power structures that oppress the people that Jesus claims to have come to save. As I do recall saying from recordings long ago, if the modern church did what it said on the tin, I'd probably still believe in possible things and be a Christian. Just like Mr. Van Gogh, I desire action, not just talk. In the months between when you last heard my voice and now, most of those months have been pandemic months. This has resulted in me spending nearly zero time in doing volunteering-type projects. In the closing days of my time as a churchgoer, I went to help out with teaching math and reading comprehension skills to people in prison working to get their GED. I also would help with distribution of food for those in need. I helped drum up some winter coats for public school students in need. I've done nearly none of that since the start of the pandemic, and I don't particularly like that, but I certainly can't do any of those things in person without endangering myself and others. I feel bad about it. For those of you that have felt that you can appropriately suit up with protections in place and do so, I applaud you and I hope that you truly were safe for yourself and everyone around you. For myself, I work with people who are anti-maskers. I'm still on several church mailing lists and I've received plenty of pictures from church events where there isn't a single mask in the shot. Perhaps where you live, you are surrounded by people who take the pandemic seriously. Where I am at, that is not the case. 
I am, frankly, daily surprised that I have not contracted COVID-19 because of the number of people who have had their minds poisoned against science by right-wing internet conspiracies and nonsense partisan propaganda from the Trump administration. Enormous American Christian denominations have had ample opportunities to protect their own congregants by unequivocally decrying this anti-science messaging. If it's happened, I've managed to miss it. I don't think that I have had much else to say specifically on the pandemic, but I will remark that I did have a co-worker who refused to ever wear a mask, despite it being a requirement of our job, because she was, quote, covered by the blood of Jesus, unquote. The office she worked in had six people in it, and six people contracted COVID-19, including one person who had to be hospitalized, and a couple months later still has to stop at a bench to catch his breath between the parking lot and the doors to the office. I guess that was all part of your God's plan, lady. Before veering away from the topic of the church handling misinformation, I do have to remark that I have seen several online posts from Christian bloggers that are discussing the American church's complete and total lack of a response to the QAnon conspiracy theories that have run rife through their congregants. This may be news to you for the first time, but this is certainly something that is true. I was on the way out of the church, even though I don't think I knew it at the time, right about the QAnon stuff was really getting ramped up, and I heard that nonsense come from the mouths of people that I had attended church with. The author of these blog posts are Christians, and the tone of their writing seems to be laced with surprise. How in the world could people who are weakly conditioned to believe in the mysterious machinations of invisible forces conspiring for and against you believe in something like QAnon? I have found other writers who are far less forgiving of Christians falling in a conspiracy trap, but speaking from personal experience, this is not at all the first conspiracy theory to burn like wildfire through American Christianity. The satanic panic that I talked about before should be old news to anyone listening to my voice right now. Back in the 90s, everyone in my household knew for a fact that Satanists were raping newborn babies to death in secret rituals in basements below kindergartens and daycare centers. That's not hyperbole. We knew it to be factual and true. One year, I wasn't allowed to go trick-or-treating because Satanists were roaming the streets looking for blonde-haired, blue-eyed boys like myself to sacrifice to their dark lord. The Satanic Temple's gray faction has done a ton of work at pointing out how all of this was believed as true and based on books and articles that were printed without a single bit of editorial oversight that asked, could you please cite any of this before we run it to the press and people take it as the gospel truth? There's a lot of money in Christian printing, and I'll let you know that the Christian household believes that anything published by Zondervan or came off the shelves of a New Life Christian bookstore may as well have fallen from the lips of the Son of God himself. It was consumed without thought or consideration to the possibility that facts would be wrong or that something written as opinion would be understood as fact. I recall in the 1990s, tied to the ongoing legal prohibition against school-sponsored prayer, we somehow all believed that any day now, the federal government would outlaw Christianity, round us up, and force us at gunpoint to renounce Jesus. Audio Adrenaline's catchy song, Can't Take God Away, has some of this. And if you haven't already, please find the music video for Ray Boltz's I Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb on YouTube or somewhere. 
It literally has a family being taken away for execution for being Christians. My point in all of that is that QAnon's infiltration of the church probably shouldn't even be viewed as an infiltration. The soil is fertile. The seeds found root. Another area of personal growth for me is that the most visible and active Satanists online right now are leftists. And I mean actual leftists. Not liberals or Democrats who the Republican Party have conditioned us to believe of as leftists, which they are not. Thanks to them for helping me understand that and the state of American politics and her policies. As a result of reading more of their thoughts, it has helped me really understand that since the time of Constantine to right now, the most calcified organs of Christendom has existed to support those who are in power, despite Christianity's original goals to be for those who are disenfranchised, such as enslaved people and women. Something that has come across my radar is a video series by a Christian man named Jamar Tisby called The Color of Compromise that you can find on Amazon Video, which is based on a book of the same name. In it, Tisby, with plenty of citations, walks the viewer through the history of American Christianity propping up the institution of slavery, then Jim Crow laws, and then into the modern day. He does all of this with the intention that the modern church analyzes itself and does something about its own problems. Tisby's work is worth your time, but I'll tell you that his effort will be a failure. The American church has been a haven for white supremacy since day one, and it is now a feature, not a bug. In my three decades of being a Christian, I never heard a word unkind to non-white Americans ever be corrected. Any time that a social project came up, we'd nearly every time find some black neighborhood to patronize with our goodness for an afternoon, pat ourselves on the back, check to make sure that we still had our wallets and purses, then go home and tell everyone about how much we helped out. We had no interest in establishing relationships and actually spending church resources on ongoing work. Nope, none of that, thank you. That mean we'd have to be friendly to those people every day, and that's just asking too much. Let me take a breath here. So I've spent a lot of time talking about the failings of Christianity that I'm now seeing even more that now that I'm outside of it. But I don't want to mislead you. Satanism has its own winners and losers. Anton LaVey's book is one of the most visible artifacts of Satanism, and it does have value. I think that the argument that human beings are animals, and if we pretend that we're too much more than that, we're just putting on airs and causing more trouble for ourselves. Let's live in reality here. But he also was quite a sexist, among plenty of other personal shortcomings. There are people that live at the crossroads of Satanism and Nazi ideology. It's not all the Garden of Eden here. One of the strengths of Satanism is the weakness of Christianity, in my opinion. I know that I've taken plenty of well-deserved shots at Christians who claim that the Holy Bible is perfect and true and should be taken literally, but cherry-picks as to what is important and what is not. In Satanism, that's what you want to do. A passage from LaVey's The Satanic Bible, quote, I break away from all conventions that do not lead to my earthly success and happiness, unquote. Perfect. Who wouldn't want to accept that as a maxim? I can claim that single line is true and good, and I can also discard the Satanic Bible as a manual for treating other people poorly and not having to feel bad about it. The Satanic Temple's own Lucian Greaves, overall, I like him. I haven't read every word he's written or heard every word he's spoken. 
but there are Satanists that don't care for him or even hate him. The most visible critics of his that I can find seem to stem everything from a time he was asked to say that he doesn't think that Nazis should be able to say Nazi things, which he declined to do. If you're a free speech at all costs person, you can't say that other people can't say things. Mr. Greaves also has kept company with a range of people, some of which are people I don't like. Most recently it was a collaboration with Nurgle from the band Behemoth, who is someone I'm not a fan of. But I'm guessing that he doesn't approve of the entire roster of my friends as well, so until I have a good reason, I'll keep my witch-burning kindling in the rain. However, I do think that the Satanic Temple should have more faces in the spotlight aside from his. Hopefully some of those faces are going to be queer and or not white. If you find yourself on Satanic Twitter, you're going to get some nudity. Really quick. This is an area of development where I'm still assessing where I'm at. First, I can say that I have done some serious work at finding and destroying some of the needless sexual prohibitions that have been instilled in my brain by my upbringing. Although I wouldn't feel it fair to call myself pansexually, I'm a tad gay, and I'm fine with that. And I'll go further and say that I think everyone is at least a little gay. Satanism has helped with that. I also don't at all feel awkward when sexual content comes up in movies that I'm watching with other people. If they don't like what they're seeing, they've got eyelids to close or legs to walk. Their discomfort is only mine if I know that they'd be uncomfortable and I picked a show or a movie that would make them as such. However, even though I've made some personal growth in areas of being more sex positive, there are some Twitter accounts that I follow that really do like chucking a load of nudity out there for reasons that I'm hoping are feeling personally empowering for them, but there's a lot of it and it's a bit much for me. I'm unclear if I've still got a dash of prude in me, or if those accounts are just not for me, or what. But if you're going to do a deep dive into satanic Twitter, you've been warned. I think that with my time reading and discussing with other satanists, I think that the scope of personal compassion has grown beyond what the church gave me. I mentioned before the white supremacy, and I'm about to discuss something that I'm not quite sure how to put into words. When a missionary would come back from, uh, I'll say Nepal, they'd come back with pictures and stories and saying things that seemed to boil down to, we spent a tremendous amount of resources to haul our white American bodies halfway around the world to these brown people with real problems such as food security, water security, electrical and communication deficiencies, and then we told them their religion was wrong and left. And all that was told in sort of a tone that never really left me with the feeling that these Nepalese people were viewed as equal human beings. Set aside my snark about the mission trips, that's kind of the point that I'm trying to get at, and I feel that I'm coming up short. The churches I belong to spent time telling me that God created all people, but didn't spend any time really drilling into my head that God did so, and there are no circumstances that make them greater or less than me or the other way around. The satanic left, at least, does do that and does it aggressively. Someone else's experiences and circumstances might have led them to a place where they have thoughts that are wrong, but they're no less a human being. I've been led to believe that Unitarians and the Episcopalians actually do a pretty decent job at this, but have never set foot in their doors. 
If what I heard is true, good for them, and I wish them well, and I hope others follow suit. All of this maps to the Satanic Temple's first tenant. One should strive to act with compassion and empathy towards all creatures in accordance with reason. Satanists are, in my experience, largely welcoming and friendly people to everybody, but it's not all sunshine and rainbows either. In my time online conversations, I've seen people get shut down and shut down hard. Frequently, it's for troll-type stuff, but sometimes it's not. I know that in the few satanic discord servers that I lurk in, typically the time that moderators have gotten involved, things have gotten pretty far out of bounds. But I think that even in conversations that are being held by people friendly to the satanic temple, I think that the fourth tenet, which includes mention of the freedom to offend, gets a bit murky. In fact, of all seven of the tenets, it is the one that I think I spend the most time thinking about. If everyone has the freedom to offend, do I have the freedom to not listen to them? And if I'm a Discord mod, do I have the freedom to make the decision that nobody has to be offended by this person? But before I get in the weeds, I'll move on. As I mentioned in previous episodes, there is a bravery that has to come along with discarding the idea that there is a supernatural force that is protecting and guiding you. My continued time as a Satanist has helped me shed some of the fear that comes with taking that logical leap. The fear that I'm burdened with being the master of my own destiny and the originator of all of my choices and the recipient of the consequences of those choices with no gods to blame or credit. That fear still exists and still wakes up from time to time to ask me that if there is no heaven and there is no God, and everyone will die, and the sun will burn out, and the universe will have a heat death, or expand so fast that it tears apart, why does any of this matter? And maybe you should just end things now. It's in there. Now, don't don't worry. You're, you're not going to have to try and figure out where I live and call someone to talk me off the ledge. I'm, I'm not suicidal. But I want to be honest with you. Had I been raised to understand that I have one beautiful life to do with as I see fit, I wouldn't have that in my mind, or at least not so loud. But having a lifetime of having it explained to me that my only purpose is a god's pawn, and now that god is gone from my imagination, it sometimes gets rough. From English madman Aleister Crowley, quote, The student, if he obtains any success in the following practices, will find himself confronted by things too glorious or dreadful to be described. It is essential that he remain the master of all he beholds, hears, or conceives. Otherwise, he will be the slave of illusion and the prey of madness. Unquote. Currently, I think that that is my personal development theme. Finding, understanding, and discarding illusions. Why do I believe this way? Were the reasons given to me valid? Is there a better way? Does this belief have value? Is the value valid for me and me only, or does it apply everywhere? Some days it does feel like I'm rebuilding a house that I'm living in, and sometimes I don't get done replacing the room's roof just as I need to take a break and it starts raining. But it's been overall productive, and I presume a lifelong pursuit. So, I've been chatting a while, and I feel that my thoughts are meandering, as previous episodes, so I hope you won't fault me for that. But what's next for me? I'm married to a woman who understands and agrees with my criticism of American Christianity, but she maintains that she is still a Christian, 
and we haven't gotten divorced over any of this or even had any things get tense over it. So that's good. I think that I had mentioned that our last church we left over its stance on homosexuality and in between cutting those ties in this moment, no new church has been found and then the pandemic started. My wife plans on trying out a local Episcopalian church and I think I'll probably attempt to attend with her from time to time, mainly to spend time with my wife, but I'm not sure if that'll last. At the end of my time attending church, I tried to understand biblical things as a literary construct, like a book club would, but I had a hard time sitting next to people who took it literal. Imagine attending a book club reading some Harry Potter or something, and then finding out an hour in that everyone else thinks that Hogwarts is real. That's where my mind was at. Also, in the weeks just prior to the start of the pandemic, I was starting to reach out to some sort of distant satanic groups to see about attending a meetup of some sort. Once the pandemic is over, I'll renew those efforts, but right now, I've, to the best of my knowledge, met absolutely zero satanists in real life. We'll see how that goes. Despite having more time to do reading, I've not checked off some of the more popular books that satanists or freethinkers have recommended, so I've got to ramp up doing more of that. And just as I'm wrapping up, I think to sum up my special, where is Stephen now episode with, it's just been more of the same since the last episode, really. I'm more aware of theocratic things to be angry about. I'm more aware of how many of my friends, family, and coworkers rely on an imaginary Bronze Age concept to get them through the day. I'm more satisfied with my personal reality. I'm feeling better about my own existence. I'm doing better at understanding everyone else around me as valid. And I hope you're doing well too. <laughs>